Hey, Ben Bennett here, host of the Resolution Podcast. Hey, I recently had a great conversation with my friend Brittany Moses about overcoming anxiety. She's a graduate of psychology and research at UCLA and a mental health author. We talked about overcoming anxiety and how understanding biblical truth and brain science can help us recognize the symptoms of anxiety in our life, understand what's going on, and how to move forward and even find lasting freedom from anxiety. Check it out. I hope it encourages you. Hey, everyone. We'll get going in just one minute. My friend Brittany Moses and I are going to have a conversation about overcoming anxiety. We're going to be talking about brain science, how that, understandings from that can help us overcome anxiety, uh, biblical truth, going to be hearing some of Brittany's story, sharing some of my story, the things we found helpful in overcoming anxiety, um, trying to get Brittany on here. It's going to be a great conversation, and uh, we'll get going in just a minute here. Um Biblical truth, brain science has helped me so much. Can't wait to share more about that. And so Brittany's hopping on right now, I think. Hi. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? I am doing well. Ben, we did it. We made it to the live. <laughs> we made it happen. You know, sometimes technology just... Is it well, favor? I just have to thank you because we've been trying to do this live around anxiety and I love all the work you're doing. And my life has been crazy the past few months with the wedding and travels and stuff, but we're here. We're yes, yes, this is what, three, four months in the making. We finally made it. So literally the most patient person. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know about that, but. Appreciate it. How, how are you doing? How are things out there in LA? Still got well, some sun? Things are better. I still have some sun. Um, I was hoping to catch the, the golden hour here, but I have my ring light if if things go down. But yeah, we just survived this heat wave. That was humbling. Um, <laughs> so other than that, we're doing good. How about you? Good. Congrats on getting married recently. It seemed amazing, amazing wedding it looked like and Thank great celebration. I I am doing well. I've got the sun in the background here, my I see digital you. sun. I uh, love that. Yeah, S U N, not S O N. Um in case people aren't watching but listening and have their phones down. Um I'm doing well. Out here in Dallas, we survived a heat wave as well. And, oh, uh, gosh, yeah. Just making it through summer, busy events, speaking, lots of cool ministry stuff, taking I care of it. So, um, right? Excited I'm for this conversation. It. Yeah, I'm wondering do we have a small delay? Do you think? Is there. Okay. It might be tiny. I don't know. Okay. Don't know it's my AirPods. How about now? Um, the whole time you have been like, not delayed at all on my end. So okay. I don't know. Okay. I think this is yeah, fine. Third. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> or it will just be awkward for you. <laughs> we'll see. It's all right. I can deal with the pauses. I'm live in a while. So I'm super excited and super excited to see everyone who's coming in and joining. And so glad you guys could join us tonight for this chat about anxiety I, I never like I like I feel weird about saying anxiety is my jam but it kind of is it's like it's been a lived thing it's been a study thing as I'm sure it has been for you so yeah. and it's the number one mental health condition in the world mm. so impacts everybody or everybody either everybody deals with it at some point or they know somebody who deals with it and it's right. it's just a human thing that we have to Normalize. You know, I used to think like, because I started dealing with mental health stuff at age eight, and I used mm. to think you know, some people um, 
deal with mental health. Some don't. Just like some people pray to Daddy God, and some people don't. <laughs> In my insides. Yeah, there's people. So, anyways, but uh, no, I feel you. Anxiety is one of those things that it is wild to me how long it took me to realize that what I was living with was anxiety because hmm. you're living with something for so long and you're having these thoughts for so long or these experiences for so long that it becomes a normal part of your life or it becomes normalized. And I didn't realize how long I was living in survival mode um, until some things broke down in my life and I was forced to pause and reassess my life. And I went to therapy alongside it. And it was like, oh, I've been living with anxiety, like all this time, didn't even realize it, didn't even know it, just surviving. Wow. How is it, how is it manifesting in your life? Was it like, did you feel it in your body? Was it more so like thoughts? How did you eventually realize it was anxiety? That's a good question. I think, so for me to be just quite transparent, I had, I was a mom at 18. Um, and I married my son's father very young around 20. And then, you know, that all kind of hit the fan. I was newly divorced in my early twenties. I was a newly single mom. Couldn't hold on to my living space. I was living on a friend's couch, basically homeless and, um, deciding to move back home to California. I was actually living in Dallas at the time. And it just was like, my whole world was kind of, everything was going wrong and, that's kind of the where anxiety set in where you just feel this i felt this general loss of control over my life mm-hmm. um but also as a teenager i was in an environment where um with someone who was very explosive all the time and it was very toxic so you just didn't know when this person was going to continuously explode so i was kind of living on edge even then um And so, yeah, with that, with becoming a newly single mom and just trying to figure out where my life was going, feeling like this constant sense of dread, like something bad was going to happen or just losing hope about the future. Um, And yeah, definitely the the physical symptoms that accompany anxiety, which is like the heart racing and, you know, panic attacks were a new level, Uh, (laughs) new level, new devil. Uh, And so... Yeah, it's been it's been a journey and um yeah, it's just one of those things that I was living with that I didn't realize I was living with. And I'm so glad you asked those questions because anxiety is something that affects us uh psychologically, physiologically, and behaviorally. And it's so important for us to understand that so that we don't bypass or minimize the real struggles of moderate and severe anxiety um when someone's going through them. Totally. And I think that's, I think, you know, for people like me, when, or like with depression and anxiety in my life, it has, I mean, when it came on as a kid, it was so intense that like I Mm. knew something was wrong, but I know so many people experience mild anxiety and it's just kind of like this background noise of fear or or worry or just kind of a state of I feel unease whereas for me it's like it can be like that but it can yeah. be the panic attacks or it can be the full-on my therapist always asks me okay when that happened on a scale of one to ten ten being extreme what was the level of it and mm-hmm. that helped me because some things are a level two and then he's helped me realize that at a level five or six things hit that level when you have trouble thinking clearly and articulating that you normally do. So he helped me realize sometimes I think my anxiety, the anxiety is lower, but it's actually a little bit higher than I think, but it's for me, it's always stomach swirling, like tension in the shoulder. Those kind of physical. Yeah. It's like, um, being able to put a language to it is really actually what helps. It kind of makes you feel a little less crazy. You're like, okay, this is what's going on inside of me. And this is how anxiety operates. And the more that you understand it and are able to kind of untangle those pieces, the more you kind of can feel like you have some, you know, you can get a hold on it or cope with it. So I totally hear that. And 
it's a spectrum, like most mental health things, you know, like you said, some people experience worry or like, I'm worried about the future and that's the anxiety. But then there's this other level of anxiety where it's like panic, like panic attacks that are brought on by triggers or, and it completely arrests your whole body and it's beyond your willpower. And it's like, how do you come down from that? You know, or there's phobias, right? Which is like, and that can be really debilitating because it sets a limit on the things that you can do and the places that you can go in your life. And that can feel incredibly defeating. And of course, um, there is treatment for that. So I do want to put give that hope as we both know. But I think at the end of the day, it's so important to meet people where they are. Because what I see happen a lot, even in the faith community sometimes, is that People will project their experience with mental health onto someone else's experience. Well, all I did was this, you know, I read this verse and I was fine. Like I took a run and I was great. Just take a run, you know? And it's yeah. just like that may have, we really need to leave room for nuance and the spectrum of mental health challenges in these conversations because it is it manifests differently for different people biologically, psychologically you know, um, in behaviorally. And it's like, we don't want to dismiss that. And I think that's the big part of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point because leaders, people, certain people can either not really have experienced it. So they, I love this quote from Dan Allender, you can't take people further than you have gone yourself. And mm. I, I don't think you have to, have walked through everything to help somebody right. like you can have compassion and empathy and seek to understand. Um, and then on the other side, people may have gone through something like anxiety. Yeah. Very, very mild. So they assume that everybody around them who comes to them for help is having the same experience when right. we're all uniquely created with different. Yeah personalities we respond differently our brain responds differently to trauma situations we develop different triggers yeah um, that was a great totally point. i mean i'd love to not have anxiety but the truth is that Emma. you know having experienced the severity of it having experienced panic attacks anxiety attacks you know the dread or whatever it definitely made me way more compassionate, way more patient, way more understanding than I used to be, especially in my faith, where I just spoke really black and white about things. Um, it definitely has been those experiences that um, it's just humbled me about how I talk about it and how I approach it. And I want to see that permeate, you know. Totally. You know, when you have those panic attacks or you, you know, those anxiety attacks and you may be much better than me at articulating the difference <laughs> panic attacks and you your brain is literally telling you you have to get out you have to escape or you're gonna die yeah. yes. um, that is hard to articulate to somebody what that is that is like like it feels like life or death oh my gosh and it's it's wild so i'll be completely transparent like I've been talking about anxiety for a while and I've written about it. I studied it at UCLA. That's what my thesis was around. And so I, I have a lot of like language around it, but this summer I ended up in some situations that triggered my panic. Like one was I almost ended up stuck in an elevator um, in New York and it was like enclosed. Uh, we also went on a subway that like stopped underground. Um, and when I was taking off on the plane, the plane was on the tarmac for like two hours and ninety. Oh, I posted about it. I was like, Literally, that. all these things happen within a matter of like five days, like back to back. I was shook. Like I, like the, I had the panic coming back and I was like, I'm going to need to see my therapist after this summer. Oh. Um, and even in it's, it's a constant journey of like, okay, let's revisit these coping skills. Like let's revisit the things that we need to do that we've learned to bring ourselves down. So it's not that we'll be f completely free of it or it'll never happen again, but it's more so 
learning how to navigate and manage and use the tools to come back down because um, it doesn't last forever. But mm -hmm. in that moment, it, it feels, it's terrifying. I, everything you're saying, it just, it's hitting so over me. It's a fear of not being able to escape, like a fear of not being able to get out of your situation. A fear, I'm like, yeah, my claustrophobia says no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've dealt with claustrophobia and fear of heights from a young age. And um, it comes out in certain situations. And then it was this past January, I started working through my yeah. fear. My, my therapist has taught me a lot about neuroscience and techniques. Yeah. And I mean, there, I mean, there's the whole thing of like, okay, there's the whole thought of figure out what this means. Cause I think that perhaps a lot of things have meaning, like fear of heights has a meaning for you. Means mm -hmm. is, can be important, but then there's also an aspect of slowly desensitizing. So yeah, I remember I started going up to this, okay, the third floor was like a, a no-go zone for me. If I go up there, I'm terrified, you know, panic. Yeah. slowly go up to the, like you do these breathing exercises, calm your mind, stay in control of your thoughts, go up to the top, then come down, do it six times. Go back a couple of days later, walk 10 feet, walk back, come down. And then I did that for weeks. And by the end of it, I was walking around the entire um, third floor of the parking um, yeah. rather than having a panic attack. And it, yeah. it was just this idea of staying in, like taking your thoughts captive, staying in control of the automatic negative thoughts and the scary thoughts and images. There's always negative thoughts and then images that come with them and it tricks mm -hmm. you into thinking it's real. Whereas for me, he really helped me see, no, take those captive and then visualize being at yeah. peace, walking around that thing, staying in control. And then it started to rewire my brain. Um, I just say that yeah. for anybody who's thinking, I don't know how I'm going to ever overcome this. Like you're wired to survive, but you're also wired to heal. In, in, yeah. in your life. I love that you're talking about like ways to overcome, hence the name of overcoming anxiety, um, because it can be with the right tools and um, with these practices. And actually exposure therapy has shown to be one of the most effective techniques when it comes to treatment of anxiety disorders. So everything that you're saying is slowly exposing yourself to the thing that you fear, which is so counterintuitive. Um, you know, so when it comes to treatment of anxiety, it's really um, looking at three things. The first is dealing with uh, it, the approach of dealing with the thoughts, being able to reframe the thoughts about anxiety. Like you said, taking those thoughts captive and thinking of new ways to look at it. The other is dealing with the physiological side of it, which is the racing heart, you know, and the sweaty palms, the things that are outside of our control, where it's just boom, activated. And it makes you feel more anxious because your body is doing these things, right? And so it's kind of a cycle, but learning how to deal with the physiological and then learning how to eliminate avoidance behaviors. Um, so typically with anxiety, we're continuously trying to avoid those things, but the um, adverse effect is that it makes those things stronger in our lives because we're building our life around avoiding them and it makes it bigger in our lives. So what you're saying is, is typically what treatment would be for something like a phobia. It's being able to little by little um, in a safe space with a safe person, expose yourself to these things so that you have basically a corrective neurological experience. You're restoring this in a safe way so it's not associated with so much fear and dread in your brain anymore. Um, so, and for some people, it can be so extreme that they can't go to the place. So they might sit down in a room with the therapist and go through visualization practices, like visualize yourself doing these things first and then working your way up. Um, so exposure therapy is, it feels counterintuitive, but it's, shown to be the most effective form of treatment and and it is it is uh it is possible um so i feel that and i'm also more than happy to talk about just some general physiological things because i know for me it's like if i don't get 
my body, like if I don't deal with the bodily thing, it's really hard to deal with the mental side of things mm. when your body is activated. I don't know about you, but like for me, it's like if yeah. my heart is pounding, right, and you're having this shortness of breath and you feel edgy or you feel shaky, like it's really hard to be like, everything's fine. Totally. Because <laughs> it's like, my body is not telling me everything's fine. Um, and so, um, one of the things that I like to talk about is the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is actually one of the, because uh, I, I know I need like practical things. Like what can I do yes. uh, practically? Um, the vagus nerve is the longest cranial nerve in the brain. Um, and it is a part of what we call the autonomic nervous system. So those are the parts of your uh brain that uh, control your basically automatic bodily functions. So you can think autonomic nervous system, automatic nervous system, it's connected to all of your organs. So your heart, you know, your heartbeat, your breathing, your lungs, your digestive system, even your pupil dilation, right? All of these things are happening automatically, you don't have to think about it. And mm -hmm. it's being controlled by, you know, your nervous system. And so as we know, we have the fight or flight response, which we call the um, uh, the sympathetic nervous system, and that's when you're activated. But then the other side of that is the parasympathetic nervous system, which we call rest and digest because it helps bring you back down. So our all that to say, promise I'm bringing it together. Um, the vagus nerve helps uh, activate your parasympathetic nervous system. It's the side of your nervous system that kind of helps bring down the heart rate you know, allow you to breathe more openly, bring you back to that cool, calm, or even just that homeostasis, mm -hmm. you know. And so when we stimulate the vagus nerve, um, that can help um, with bringing our body back down. So our vagus nerve is actually, be it, it runs behind our earlobes and behind our vocal cords, you mm -hmm. know, and all the way down through our autonomic, through our nervous system. And so some things that I do, sometimes I rub behind my ears and I hum, I hum and okay. stimulating. That's if you've ever felt like the calming effect of like humming, you know, like some practices they chant, but in this case, yeah. like, mm, like not only are you regulating your breath to a rhythm, but you're stimulating your vagal nerve. And I rub behind my ears and it just kind of like, and I'm telling myself like, this will pass. It always passes. Like, just let it pass that can help bring me down. But then we also have something called the dive reflex, which I think is just great for kind of just resetting your nervous system. Um, it's been shown that really every mammal, mammals have this dive reflex and it's our body's response to being immersed in cold water. And so basically if you, you know, were to put your face in like a bowl of cold water or ice water, what it does is it prioritizes sending blood to your brain and it slows your heart rate. Hmm. Um, so that might not be everybody's jam, but um, these are like little hacks of things you can do. Sometimes it's like for me taking just like an ice pack and just resting it on my chest for breathing or taking a cold shower, you know, like these things that just kind of like almost like jolt my nervous system and um, give it kind of a reset. And that can help with reducing, um, it kind of overrides your body. That can help with reducing heart rate is activating your dive reflex. Um, so those are like kind of some small, I mean, immediate things you can do. But I think in the moment when you're feeling an anxiety attack or you're feeling a panic attack and things are racing, um, you almost just kind of have to tell yourself like this isn't going to last forever We've gone through this before. It will pass. I'm not going to die because, <laughs> like you said, it's it's attached to the that like that's what anxiety does. It's like the end of this is going to be bad. <laughs> like the end result of this is going to be bad. I'm like I'm going to be rolled out of here on an emergency gurney. Like you know, <laughs> like I'm going to be the person who's rolled out of this place, taken to the hospital. This is going to end badly. Because I feel like I'm going crazy. I have to calm myself down and be like, something that I remind myself is, I have felt my heart race before and I was fine. Hmm. Right? So when you go running, 
when you go jogging, when you exercise, when you go up a flight of stairs, you have felt your heart race and it didn't lead to anything bad. It eventually came back down, right? right? It comes back down. Your body is wired to come back down. So even just reminding myself, like, just because my heart is racing, that doesn't mean something bad is going to happen. That doesn't mean something horrible is going to happen. My heart has raced in situations before and I've experienced it coming back down and everything was okay. So I can let my heart race and let it go through this process and come back down and I'll be okay. Yeah, so good. I learned more of the, is it similar to polyvagal theory? Yeah. Yeah, I, I've been looking into some of those techniques. What's really helped me is um, acupressure points. Mm-hmm. But he, watching if you if you google acupressure points you don't have to use the needles you just uh, press on them for like 30 seconds to a couple minutes acupressure points for anxiety they're connected to your body well they are on your body but connected your <laughs> palms down your limbic system and your heart rate and really helped me and then also the power of acceptance rather because mm-hmm. it's like the way i see anxiety and we talk about this a lot is that anxiety is a signal. It's not yeah. random alerting you because whether or not you're being endangered, you think you are either from past traumatic experiences, negative experiences, or you actually are seemingly in danger. And so anxiety, fight or flight is coming on, but the power of acceptance rather than um, trying to ignore it or say, no, I'm not anxious. I can, I can handle this thing for yeah. me. Yeah, I am exact. I am anxious, even though I feel anxious. Um, yeah. I deeply and completely love and accept myself. Um, yeah. And just going back to that, like, yes, I am anxious, and I'll get through yeah. it. Sometimes it goes away by saying, "Yes, I am." Like I listen to the signal. Yeah. I am anxious, and I will get through this. And then remembering that nobody's died of a panic attack before, like yes, it's right, ass. And then sometimes I've done this um, visualizing, looking at myself, like stepping up, like closing my eyes, stepping beside myself and seeing myself anxious and seeing what that, what do they call that? Um, Mindful, is it mindfulness? In a way, yeah, yeah. And observing what is happening and going on. All those four things have helped me. Yeah, yeah, those are good. Yeah. Tell us yeah. about um if you can, some of the recent research you've been doing on the what is it on trauma and anxiety and the connection there at UCLA. Did you start that in Yeah. Germany? That was actually I'm like was it one or two years? Like two years ago. COVID has my ears all mixed up. I'm like COVID <laughs> years just skips. They just don't count. Um Yeah, so I was looking at um, the relationship between childhood trauma and the development of anxiety disorders later on in life, Um, because as we know, trauma stores in the brain and body. And so, you know, anxiety is not, well, it can feel random, but a lot of times um, with anxiety, it's not random, like it started somewhere or we develop these survival mechanisms, even just biologically to survive our environment, um, or sometimes it's genetic, right? Not anything that anyone did. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I was looking at um, the relationship. So I actually was looking at some pre-existing data that was already in the lab. Um, they, are, they were looking at um, youth who were at risk of developing psychosis, of going into psychosis. So who they were looking at risk factors for schizophrenia. But what I did was I basically took that and looked at the um, assessments that they did around anxiety um, to see if there was any relationship between their childhood trauma scores um, and, or trauma before the age of 16 was the form scores and anxiety. Um, And there, I mean, there was a significant difference. Um, It wasn't as largely significant as I thought it would be. Um, but I, but it's also one of those things that are also like experiential, like we know that the brain is associative. Um, and, and, and this is where I think we need to reduce any shame around anxiety where it's like, oh, something's wrong with me, or I must be crazy or whatever. Cause I'm experiencing this. It's like, no, 
you have an associative brain and your brain and body are wired to protect you. So if you experience something that was traumatic for you or extremely painful for you, and that just doesn't, that doesn't have to just be physically, that could be, it was mentally, emotionally, psychologically harmful for you and it affected you, um, then your, your brain stored that as a trauma, your brain stored that as something to stay away from. Um, and so when you find yourself in similar situations or there's similar triggers or stimuli, um, it alerts you, like it goes off, you know, um, maybe there's, you know, a place that you can't go to because that's where the trauma took place. Or maybe there's a certain smell that's associated with it or a sound or, or you're even just in a circumstance that feels familiar to another circumstance where you were hurt or there was pain and it's triggering you. That happens a lot with dating, <laughs> you know, the dating anxiety, you know, it's like um, where it's like, I've been in a situation like this and I was hurt. So then you get really scared to date or to communicate those fears um, instead of working through them, but you've associated it, you know? Um, and so that's where it's thinking about the cognitive side where it's like, okay, we've been in this situation before. Um, this is not the same thing. And I'm going to choose to move through this with the wisdom and coping skills that I have. Um, and I trust that God has me, you know, in, in the end of it. So, so yeah, I mean, there's like the, you know, there's a nervous system side where if, over time, it can lead to a dysregulated nervous system, you know, where it, there is this hyper um, release of stress hormones, you know, um, that's on the hormonal side. There's also this study that I really think is so interesting by American neuroscientist Joseph Ledeau. And um, he is the one who kind of coined the amygdala hijacking. And so I'm sure you're familiar with the amygdala, like us and people with anxiety. We're just like, yeah, we know that. We know that we're, guy. We're very acquainted. <laughs> um, the amygdala is, you know, in the mid area of our brain and it's the shape of almonds. That's why it's called the amygdala. I believe it's the Greek word for almonds. And so uh, it's, and it's in our brain and it's associated with the fear center of our brain. And so what he found is that there are two pathways. Um, there's, you know, you have your frontal lobes, which are responsible for thinking, planning, judgment, decision-making. And then you have your amygdala, which is um, responsible for the fear response. And what happens is when you're triggered by something, your brain actually, it like short circuits to your amygdala before it delivers the message to your frontal lobes. So literally the fear center of your brain hijacks the rest of your brain, which makes so much sense. Why we can't think clearly when we're experiencing anxiety, why it's hard to um, have sound judgment through our thoughts, why it's hard to think through things and make our way through the reality of the situation. It's because our brain is just like, just get out of there. Um, you're in a dangerous situation. We don't need to think about it. We just need to fight or flight or flee, <laughs> you know? And so just allowing some time for that amygdala hijacking to subside, whether it's the deep breathing, like you mentioned, or sometimes just sitting down and journaling through things um, and working through it before responding um, can be helpful. And just knowing for me, like, my brain is hijacked by fear right now. Like my brain is hijacked by anxiety right now. And therefore I'm thinking and seeing things from a perspective of fear. And I need to give time for, to, to settle myself um, before I make a response or before I come to a conclusion about things. And that's where I love what you said earlier about um, just that acceptance. Because what I was trying to do, which was making it worse, was I was trying to distract myself from it. Mm. Like when I would feel the anxiety or I'd feel like the panic attack coming on or whatever it was, I would try to like distract myself from it by like, I don't know, grab my phone or do something else or turn something on. But what happens is like your brain is smart. It knows that you're distracting yourself from something. So 
what actually helps is like you said, it's facing it head on. It's just like, okay, we are, you know, our body is activated right now. Like our brain is activated. We're feeling anxiety right now. That's okay. It will pass. We've been here before. We're going to breathe through this. We're going to kind of ride it out like a wave. Like that for me, it's like that acceptance, facing it head on, acknowledging it, letting it pass was way more effective than trying to ignore or distract from what I was feeling. I think that actually made it worse. Like that actually amped it up. <laughs> yes. Yeah, totally. And and that's where I've often struggled with a lot of times either in church or the advice you'll you'll get for like anxiety is to do something rational like mm. or tell God that you're anxious and on a biological level our uh, rational thinking part of our brain is the prefrontal cortex and then when we're in anxiety it's the amygdala and we're just being flooded with fight or flight those are two separate parts of the brain yeah and yeah. Prayer is helpful, but I think about like like God created us with our fight mm -hmm. part of the brain. When you need to escape a burning building, or when you right. you're crossing the street in a city and have to jump out of the way to avoid a car, um, yeah. your brain protecting you. And our brain gets hijacked when we go through. When I talk about trauma, I, I think I think we're getting better at explaining it. In, in our world and what it is and, and whatnot, because, you know, it wasn't in the DSM book, the Diagnostic Manual. Can you believe that? Like, I'll just tell, like, the 70s. And just, it was, you're just like, we'll call it PTSD and call it a day. Yeah. Like, you know. And, and so, so many people grew up thinking that it's, okay, yeah. you come from war and you, because you saw a bunch of people killed or, like, you go through physical abuse or sexual abuse and that's yeah. trauma else is. But, People have trauma who had unmet needs from parents or a sibling. Neglect. Neglect. Yeah, yeah. You see that That's in babies. There's an experiment done in the 50s uh, where half of infants died because they they wanted to see in one facility. We'll care for the infants. We'll change their diapers. We'll pick them mm -hmm. up. Um, this other facility will just change their diapers but ignore their emotional needs. They had to halt the. Um, experiment because half yeah a little unethical yeah it's yeah. like that's that's traumatic they weren't punch you know they weren't it was neglect they weren't you know yeah. hitting hitting or doing things like that but um yeah. so for everybody it can be it could be a buildup of neglect of negative experiences and your brain just starts to try and protect you and you start getting anxious about things that bring on rejection or when you don't feel safe or things that look like smell like remind your brain yeah. of those past experiences and yeah uh, what a world to live in today where all we have to do is get on social media turn on the news and see trauma and see all the oh stuff. my gosh yeah oh. i i'm done i can't i'm like i can only take so much news these days especially after the past couple of years i definitely put limits on my news intake and yeah there's so many places that anxiety could come from. I even think about anxious parenting styles, you know, where some people are raised with a very anxious parent and they developed, they, through observational learning, they developed that anxiety of how to take on things and take on the world, right? And so even thinking about how that relays um, tends to run in families often. I was like to my mom, I'm like, when were you going to tell me that you and my grandmother both were at one point on medication for anxiety. Like, were you just going to let me like ride this thing out and like hit the wall and be like, hmm, you know, <laughs> like yeah. not something we're going to talk about, you know? Um, <laughs> so there's that whole thing of like things going on in families and not talking about it. And then you wake up one day and you're like, Hey, this is actually a problem. Um, and I'm going to break the cycle of this by dealing with it. And I think that's where a lot of our generation is where we're, we're talking about these things. Um, but, but yeah, it's, uh, well, like you said, just the same way that our bodies can wire around trauma, it can also rewire around healing. Um, 
we we talk about neuroplasticity, about how our brain is literally able to make new neural pathways with practice, and it can become a more automatic way of life with practice, you know. Um, so yeah, practicing these coping mechanisms, practicing reframing, and not being afraid to get the help. I think sometimes we feel like, well, we've lived this way for so long and we're surviving, you know, our leg may be dragging along with us, but it's like, but we're surviving, so it's yeah. fine. But I think looking at the spectrum of things, anytime that the anxiety becomes so bad or so severe that it is affecting your everyday life, like it's affecting your ability to work, it's affecting your interpersonal relationships or your romantic relationships, or it's um, affecting your ability to live life, to just go outside or do the things you want to do. It's creating these severe limits in your life. Yeah, those are signs to get help because you are worthy of freedom, you know, and it is possible with the right help. And I think that's the hope. Like, it's the idea of, I know you and I are advocates of partnering with God and your emotions, partnering with God and the treatment that you need because you're deserving of holistic freedom. Um, and I think that's what really made me passionate about the intersection of faith and mental health, you know, is we're really good. I think about talking about the spiritual side of things, but in my mind, as I was experiencing things and seeing people struggling in church, it was like, people are worthy of complete and total freedom. They're worthy of also mental freedom, physical freedom, you know, yeah. all the things that come together to create this experience you know it's like i prayed but i'm still experiencing these panic attacks or i prayed but that's great we've got that spiritual side but you're also worthy of freedom from these other aspects of your life that are affecting you so let's dive into it you know because everyone's worth overall freedom totally totally and it's it's so fascinating because in the past couple of years, I've had several friends. There was something off in their body or, or some kind of pain. They went to the doctor. Um, I don't even know if they prayed first. You know, they went, just went to the doctor. That's what you do. Even people that love Jesus, you go figure it out. And then they got diagnosed with cancer. And then they mm. went treatment. And yes, they were praying for healing, but they trusted the doctors and, the, and you know, the, the science and many of them are in remission now. And yet, for some reason, when it comes to anxiety, depression, we feel like we got to wait. We feel like we got to wait till we're into a mental health crisis before we go seek help. When, I mean, I do a checkup at, a, at the doctor when I have no pain once a year just to make sure everything's good, you know? Right. Well, um, or the dentist or whatnot, maybe not so much the dentist, you know, <laughs> but, um, yeah. In, for some reason, mental health. We box God. It's like, I don't, I never, I don't understand like why we put God in a box with mental health, but we don't put him in a box for any other situation. Like if a person was going through cancer and then was getting chemo or treatment, and then because of that, they were in remission. Like people are so quick to be like, praise God, they're healed. Like, praise God. Like we're like thankful that they used all these tools and that God showed healing through these different tools or whatever it is. It doesn't have to be as severe as cancer. It could be anything like praise God. Um, you know, you're just healed from this or healed from that. And it's just like the same thing with our brains. Like literally sometimes anxiety could be, um, what's it called? Um, hypothyroidism. Hmm. Okay. Like I always like to throw that one out there. Like your thyroid is responsible for your metabolism, which is, you know, how it's metabolizing your energy. If someone has hypothyroidism, meaning that their thyroid is overactive, then it's literally creating, creating physiological symptoms of anxiety and, and the heart racing and the edginess. That is not something to do with their spiritual state. That's not something to do with, you know, their character, like this is literally an organ in their body yes. that needs to be addressed because our body is psychosomatic. So our body can create psychological effects and psychological effects can come down and create physiological effects. 
And it's like, until we can piece those two together, we're always going to be missing a part and people are going to be missing a part in their healing. And they're worthy, like we said, of holistic healing. And so it's just like, we got to just let people who are experts in this um, do their job. I wear glasses. I'm like legally blind. I've never once had someone tell me to believe God for my eyesight. Like, could you imagine if it's just like, you know, don't wear your glasses, believe God. Like I've been wearing these since the third grade. I am believing, I fully believe in miracles. I believe God can heal instantaneously. But I also believe healing can be in a process too. We can't uh, narrow healing to just being instantaneous. Like the only way God heals is instantaneously. Like we need to open up the idea that God also heals through processes and he can also heal through time and in more ways than one, however he wants to or chooses to in that person's life, you know? Um, so, so yeah. And it's the same thing with mental health. Like if you wouldn't tell someone to believe God for their eyesight and to just take off their glasses and not wear them anymore, don't treat someone's brain that way. Uh, totally. you know? Yeah. And he Let's wired- be consistent. That's what I always say. Let's be consistent in our theology. Let's be right. consistent in our ideology. We can't, you know, pick and yeah. choose. That's so good, right? He, I mean, he wired our brain that way to slowly rewire. It doesn't rewire quickly. You think about somebody who's experienced a, a stroke or I work yeah. with a lot and they have these injuries and they got to go to um, rehab. But with people with uh, strokes and they their brain shuts down in an area, can't move their hands, they go and their brain rewires and relearns, reroutes. Yeah. They can use that part of their hands again, and that takes time. And yeah, they could pray and God could do a miracle and their hand could, their brain could be rewired and everything right then, but more often than not, the way he created it is for it to be a process. And perhaps because we're yeah. more dependent on him, more dependent on others, and in that process, we, I think of Spurgeon and how he said, I've learned mm-hmm. to uh, kiss the way that ashes me the rock of ages. Mm. And God uses our pain and those things to take us deeper with him and, and with other people. Yeah. I think the moment that we really allow for this acceptance of God healing and processes and not overnight, it's going to reduce a lot of shame. I remember going to these conferences, you know, like these church conferences and thinking it's like tonight, God is going to free you. Like you're never going to deal with that thing again. He's going to take it off you. And, you know, and I remember just being like, this is it. Like, I'm going to be done with this thing. I'm going to be healed. And like I said, I believe that can happen, but that's not always the case. I remember going to that. And then like a month later, a week later, you're like, how am I back here? Like, I'm still dealing with this. Like, what's wrong with me? I thought I was free. God, where are you? You know, and it's like, we're setting ourselves up. You know, God, even though we're made new in Christ, we still have a lived human experience. And it takes time to uh, wire, rewire the way that we've been thinking, feeling, living all our lives and the experiences that came with that. And we, when we can allow for that, then we can stop shaming ourselves and others when there's not an instantaneous fix or instantaneous healing. And we can open to the idea that, okay, like, and we'll be humbler with how we approach people, you know, and not trying to fix them, but just like trusting that God is in their process. Like, what do you need? Like, I don't need to fix you right now. I'm not trying to fix you with 10 scriptures right now. These may be encouragement to you, but whatever you need, you know, I'm here. Um, even if it's not happening right now, um, I saw that someone asked about meds. Um, where was it? They were asking about, I personally am not on medication, but I'll tell you this summer after I was like experiencing those situations where I started feeling the panic come back, I was like, I might need something. This is, this is wild. Um, I've been able to kind of wire my, like, now that I'm settled back at home, it's like, okay, I think we're all right. But I am of the belief that there's nothing wrong with medication. Um, it is not a sin. Like I said, I wear glasses. I need a prescription to correct my eyes because they are not operating the way that they should. I've never had someone question my faith for wearing glasses. 
because this is an organ in my body that clearly doesn't work or it's not operating the way it should. Same with the brain. Brain's an organ, you know, and sometimes we need something corrective um, to help us get to a functioning state. Um, and, and it's different for everybody. You know, a lot of times uh, medication plus talk therapy can, has been shown to be super effective, especially with anxiety and depression. Um, some people might be on it just for a temporary amount of time uh, because they're dealing with something situational just to get their physiology under control to a functional state so that they can start working through all the roots, all the mental roots. Some people may be on it managing for the rest of their lives. It's different for every person. Like we were saying at the beginning of this, you know, every person is different. We would never, if someone has diabetes or a heart condition, we would never tell them to stop taking their medication, you know, and just have faith because that could literally ruin them or kill them or what have you. It's the same with the brain. Um, and everybody's process is going to be different. And so um, that has to be a, that's a personal, that's a very personal thing. Like this is a very personalized thing, but I think that there are many tools in a tool belt of things that we can use, um, to help us cope and it can be to our benefit, um, in multiple ways. I think God heals and works in more ways than one. Yeah. Speaking from personal experience, I've, I've been to. It's interesting. It seems like it's shifted quite a bit in the past five or 10 years because when I was a kid, so I got, when I was dealing with anxiety and depression, the instant answer was go on medication and go on a, on a high amount yeah. antidepressant. And then I just, by, I mean, at age 13, I felt like, like a zombie and I was on that for years. And so speaking from personal experience, I, a lot of times people that aren't trained in mental health mm -hmm. like practitioner will be like, okay, I prescribe meds for this, 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 you get sick. I give you antibiotics. You're anxious. Okay. I'll put you on this and I'll put you on a high dosage. So I always think it's wise to say, okay, yeah, I will take, I will listen to my general practitioner, but I want to go to somebody who specializes in this, like a psychologist, a psychiatrist who can um, prescribe this, but also work with me and say, is this manageable or is, is my life manageable that I really need medication and also therapy too? Because what, what I've realized looking back on my journey, I wish when I was 13 that, yeah, I was put on a small amount of medication, but that I also got into good therapy where I could work through that anxiety. I could do the desensitization. I could learn what was the trauma I had experienced and start healing from that because then the, I believe the the timeline could have been a lot quicker rather than waiting right years to finally get into this and then slowly going down a medication and it just being such a longer process um, yeah therapy and medication and yeah i i, th I think yeah seek, seeking the expert <laughs> um, i think that's a great perspective thank you for adding your experience right because there is that other extreme of like throwing medication, throwing pills at everything, right? And that's not the side we want to go to either. I think a really reputable, um, you know, uh, psychiatrist is really going to try to keep you on the lowest dose that'll make you functional. And it's constant check-in. And it's like you said, it's really important to be an advocate for yourself and know that you have the right to advocate for yourself if something's not working or if something is feeling off, um, that you're a team. I think a lot of times people think there's this, there's this kind of power roles where it's like okay where they're telling me this or they're telling me i need to take this or they're prescribing me this yeah. and it's like but it's your body you are living in your body and your brain and only you really know how that's affecting you so definitely being willing to be an advocate for yourself in those situations you know <clears throat> is is really important as well yeah. yeah so good yeah so that's that's the medication just that's like the big thing that I I don't know about you but yeah medication always comes up comes up a lot yeah, fascinating and it just depends there's like the whole chemical imbalance theory and different people's thoughts on that from oh and all of that and it's so fascinating yeah I was gonna say medication go off of what you said which is really good you're like I had to, it was the talk therapy and the exposure therapy that helped 
medication doesn't cure your thoughts. Okay. So medication may help with the physiological side of things, right? It may help, um, you know, reduce the feelings of panic or block certain neurotransmitters from elevating anxiety or whatever it is, but it doesn't change your thoughts. So it's, and it's not a cure. Medication is not a cure. So that's the other side of it. It is an aid, right? Medication is an aid through a person's process as you're also developing the tools and skills that you need um, to work through things mentally. Um, And that's really how it should be functioning. Um, Whether that is long-term management or short-term management, but as you know, it doesn't fix your thoughts. Like you can take all the medication, but you still have your thoughts. You still have the way that you think of things and your mental framework. And that's why it's important to have the talk therapy and, or be doing the cognitive behavioral therapy or whatever it is that's going to help you deal with the thoughts side of things. So you're, as we like to quote, renewing your mind, you know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So good. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm over the, um, yeah, medication's not evil. It's, it's on, it depends on everybody's experience, being an advocate for yourself, you know, um, and finding what works for you, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time, Brittany, to have this yeah. conversation. So glad we finally were able to, to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I know. I'm like, Anytime someone wants to talk about anxiety, I'm like, let's talk about it. Because I right. almost had a panic attack this summer. Let's talk about how we're getting through this thing. Right. <laughs> Add in the real solutions and talk about medication and the neuroscience aspect of it. It's, um, I wish I knew this. Right. Ago, you know, when I was struggling. Yeah, it's so freeing. I think that we're doing better about talking about it in a church. In my experience, we're at a completely different place than when I was, you know, early on in church and serving in youth and young adult ministry. And it's just like, give it to God, pray yep. with them. You know, it's like, oh, we're just going to ignore this whole like neurological, physiological, psychological side that's, you know, but I think we're doing better. We're having more conversations like these. And I appreciate those like you who are making it a point and making and creating the spaces to have these conversations, not just to have them, but as a lived experience and saying, this is something I've struggled with and this is what has, what has helped me. And I just want to pass this along. So you guys bag bypass all like the unhelpful things that we went through. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And shout out to your website. I love the, um, when it comes to like, where do I even start with mental health? And you talk through, it's like, wow, this goes on forever. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Here are resources. Uh, what about medication? How do I find a um, therapist and the different types of therapy? I was like, that's a brilliant idea to have that all right, right there on, on one page. And having the hashtag Christian Mental Health. How did you get that? I just got on it so <laughs> early, right? The Yeah, I, can't, I was talking about it like years ago before it became like a buzzword. So I feel like I kind of, caught on to it but I didn't know I was just talking about my experience I was like is anybody else feeling this or experiencing this with mental health in the church and I went back to school to understand more and I was just blogging about my experience and everything kind of took off from there so I think I did kind of catch it the conversation before it became like a thing um still needed though it's still necessary and for yeah as Ben mentioned, I have a resource page for where to find a therapist or crisis or immediate help um, regarding a host of issues from eating disorders to abuse, to assault, to spiritual abuse, to, I mean, literally there's so many things, literally because over the years I've gotten so many messages um, from people and I'm like, you know what, I, I need to create like a comprehensive resource page that I can just start referring people to. Um, so it also kind of makes it easier on me just thinking smart, working smarter and not harder. Um, I'm just feeling like, look, here's everything I've gathered over the years and over time um, from folks who have been struggling with different things. Yeah, it's so helpful. All in one place. <laughs> yep. 
that's how we do. <laughs> Thanks so much. Hey, everyone who joined, this is awesome. Thanks for hopping on for this important conversation. So great to join with so many people from all around the world. Yeah. Evening. And um, wow. really appreciate it, Brittany. Thanks. I know I was just looking at the comments. Thank you for your time. I hope you guys can just continue to, if you enjoyed this conversation or conversations like these, just continue to follow along because I know Ben and myself are really uh, passionate about this and we're continuously putting out conversations and resources around the intersection of faith and mental health from a holistic perspective, bio, psycho, social, spiritual. Um, and I'm just so glad we connected. Like, it's so cool when I get to connect with people who are also at that intersection. Yeah, so great. All right, appreciate you. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you all later. Bye, guys.